This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Oleg Benesch, senior lecturer in East Asian history in the Department of History at the University of York. Dr. Benesch is the author most recently of Japan's Castles, Citadels of Modernity and War and Peace, co-authored with Ron Zwiegenberg and published by Cambridge University Press in April 2019. Dr. Benish, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, no, thank you for having me on the podcast. You have this new book coming out, Japan's Castle, Citadels of Modernity and War and Peace. And so I wanted to ask you, when we think about castles in Japan, Kimeji Castle comes to mind, but generally these are castles dating from the Sengoku period, the period of warring states in the late medieval period, in the 16th century. So what relationship do they have to the Meiji period? So in the book, uh, my co-author Ron Zweigenberg and I argue that castles are some of the most important sites for understanding continuity and change in modern Japan. And this includes both either side of 1945, but also kind of the long Meiji transition that takes place in the 1860s and 1870s. And this transition that we have from the Tokugawa kind of early modern period to the modern period is really reflected in what happens in castles. And it's one of the most turbulent times for castles, actually, in all of Japanese history, arguably even more so than during the Warring States period. A lot of castles see their first military use in the Boshin War, that is essentially the war that takes place and results in the Restoration. And this is the first military use we see for a lot of castles in Japan since they were built, because during the Tokugawa peace, there was actually little practical necessity for these fortifications. Most of them are militarily obsolete. Most people realize this, and many castles actually are surrendered with very little fighting whatsoever. There might be some token struggles just to kind of save face for both the uh, the defenders and the attackers, and then the castle will be surrendered. The famous bloodless surrender of Edo Castle when the shogun's army surrender the capital is a really case in point. I mean, that said, there are exceptions to this. I mean, Aizu Wakamatsu, the battle there is one of the most famous examples of something that really where a castle was defended, if not quite to the bitter end, then certainly for many weeks before it was finally surrendered. And, and there was great loss of life there. And this has given rise to many kind of myths and later tales such as the White Tigers or Byakotai of Aizu. But I think if we look at castles on the whole, what we're really seeing is quite a lot of continuity between the Tokugawa period and the Meiji period. So one thing is that most local rulers or daimyo realize that, you know, these castles are largely 16th, 17th century designs. They're no longer going to be relevant. They're largely obsolete if we're talking about bringing modern artillery, you know, in the 1860s and such. And they were also incredibly expensive to maintain. So in many domains, they were spending about 10% of their domain budget just on castle maintenance. And even in the 1860s, quite a few domains were petitioning the government for permission to tear their castles down and, you know, do something else with the funds, you know, maybe invested in some more modern military technology against foreign threats. And so immediately after the Meiji Restoration, one of the first things we see is dozens of petitions flowing to Tokyo, to the new Meiji government, from people who want to tear their castles down, asking for permission to do this. And the government is a bit slow to respond to these petitions. They've got a lot of things going on. And actually, lots of castles end up being torn down in the late 1860s, early 1870s, but without waiting for permission. 
I mean, the local lords are just really keen on getting rid of these things, especially once under the new government, their own funding from the central government is slashed about 10% of what it was. So really for a lot of former daimyo, pretty much all of their income is going on castle maintenance. So yeah, castles are being torn down for very practical reasons. And I mean, thousands of buildings are torn down throughout this period. Many castles are sold, sold off for scrap. And they're really portrayed as kind of useless reminders of the feudal past is what they're, what they're being referred to. And so for practical reasons, just kind of sell them, make money for the scrap, but also for these kind of ideological reasons that these are unpleasant reminders of the Tokugawa period, castles throughout Japan are being torn down in great numbers. And this is actually then combined with a transition that as these castles, which are obviously massive sites in the centers of Japanese cities, that as these castles are being torn down, these spaces are now available for new use. And the most common use is actually converting them into military bases for the newly created Imperial Japanese Army. So these castles, which were essentially restricted military sites during the Tokugawa period when they had daimyo and samurai in them, they continue that same existence in the Meiji period, except now it's kind of the modern soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army. And because, you know, so many dozens of castles are torn down in the 1870s, especially, um, that is why when we go around Japan today, so many castles are modern reconstructions rather than original sites. I noticed the exact same thing about Osaka Castle, and I enjoy showing my students, oh, look, Osaka Castle has a big elevator, and pointing out that many of these castles that we see in Japan aren't actually the originals. And how many castles are original? So that's actually a great question. I mean, it seems quite straightforward, and the straightforward answer that is usually given in this case is 12. But actually, this question is, is much more complex than it seems at first glance, because it really gets to the heart of kind of debates that we're having about authenticity, but also, you know, what a castle actually is. What is a Japanese castle? And so normally when we hear this this figure of 12 original castles, what we're, people are really talking about is 12 original castle keeps or tenshu, which are kind of the tallest structure that is generally most visible in the castle. And of the 12 original keeps in Japan, I mean, people are most familiar with, say, um, Himeji, Matsumoto, places like Kochi, Inuyama as well. Now, these are original keeps, but at these sites, although the keep is original, many of the other buildings might not be. Many of the turrets and walls might not be. But I think that equation of a castle and a keep is often quite difficult. And many castles that didn't have keeps in the modern period, if we take somewhere like Osaka or Kumamoto, the people in these towns were actually you know, feeling as though their castle was missing something. It was an incomplete castle. And we really see pushes to reconstruct those keeps. And at the same time, you know, while keeps are being protected from the late 1870s onward as kind of the most important part of the castle, other buildings are being torn down all over the place. I mean, moats are being filled in, walls are being torn down, gates are being taken away and being used in temples or private residences. Many things are just disassembled and being used for scrap and used for their parts. And actually, many of the keeps that survive are either in very remote places, such as, say, Matsumoto or Makoji or maybe Inuyama, or they are um, some of the largest keeps that were actually just too dangerous or expensive to tear down. So, I mean, if we take somewhere like Imeji, for example, there were plans to sell that off for scrap and tear it down. Matsue was similar. 
but ultimately it was too expensive and dangerous, and they ended up leaving it until the late 1870s, by which time there was some appreciation for these structures and they were no longer torn down. Nagoya is a great example. I mean, Nagoya Castle Keep was destroyed by American bombs in, in 1945, but it barely survived the 1870s. It was supposed to be torn down, but then the story goes, a passing German diplomat saw them starting to tear the thing down and essentially said, what are you doing? This is an amazing structure. You can't tear this down. And the army waited for long enough. They stalled, and then it was ultimately decided to spare the keep for various reasons. It's fascinating that the castles are actually torn down in the 1870s. I, I think the conventional understanding of, you know, the castles aren't there anymore. Well, they must have all been destroyed during World War II with the firebombing. Uh, but in fact, as you said, they're destroyed in the 1870s. And I wonder if this was part of this whole push to tear asunder the evil customs of the past, right, within the Meiji, just kind of destroying all of the symbols of pre-modern Japan. But from the 1890s, it's convenient that the military is occupying these castle grounds because, as you're describing the book, the castle then comes to take on a military symbol again for this new army. So there, I think you're really touching on kind of the two sides of what's going on here. I mean, the two aspects is that, you know, on the one hand, um, we do have this kind of ideological agenda to tear asunder these evil customs of the past. And castles are very explicitly, we see this in many of the petitions to tear them down, are very explicitly being described as useless relics of the feudal past. On the other hand, um, we also have the practical concern of you know what do we do with these very large spaces. And First of all, we can tear all the buildings down. We can maybe reuse some of them as schools, as other things. But actually, many of them we can just tear down. We'll sell the lumber for scrap. There's some funding for the local areas, which are desperately in need of funds in early Meiji. And then also we have these big spaces, and these are perfect for um, the modern military that's being created. And already by the early 1870s, we have the Imperial Japanese Army setting up in quite a few castle sites. And there are about 50 castles altogether that are kind of taken as military property at this point, but only a few, a handful of them are actually being used with any sort of military presence. It's only really kind of closer to 1890 that the military starts to really expand rapidly into castle sites. They end up fortifying a lot more castles, turning them into, into garrisons, building barracks, and they sell off a lot of the castles they don't need as well. But it's really from the 1890s that this identification of the military with the castles really starts to pick up, and especially kind of around the time of, of the Sino-Japanese War then. And it's also around that time that the military actually starts making conscious use of, of really the symbolic power of castles. From around the turn of the 20th century, that we really see a much stronger identification of the modern army with the earlier kind of martial traditions of the samurai, of the castles, and actually using its presence in the castle sites as a way of demonstrating its connection with Japan's earlier martial heritage. They are also doing this through kind of expos. They, they hold events in some castles, kind of on the parade grounds. They will have kind of regimental festivals once a year. 
And these will be kind of the one time a year that the general public can actually go in and visit the castles because these are generally restricted military spaces. But, you know, during these regimental festivals, you know, at least the parade ground and parts of the castle is opened and the whole town can kind of come in and discover, you know, what the castle is actually like, see their local heritage. And, you know, these are very, I think, important events for propaganda on the part of the military. This use of castles, though, by the army, it's also very important, I think, especially once we get into the 1910s, because they really serve to militarize urban space. I mean, we often talk about Taisho democracy, kind of the democratic interlude, supposedly, of the 1910s and into the 1920s. I think castles actually provide a bit of a counter-narrative to this, because if we look at a lot of kind of the protests, riots, and things that go on, like the Rice Riots that follow the First World War, what you have in almost every major city in Japan is you have a major often battle-hardened kind of military force in the center of these cities. And as soon as popular protests, strikes, riots, anything starts to get out of hand, if the police can't deal with it, you can send the soldiers out from these castle bases. And that is really what we see in the rice riots. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of people protesting all over Japan, and there are countless deployments from these urban castle garrisons to put down these strikes and riots. And then kind of as we get on into the later 1920s and 1930s, there are more and more kind of national defense expos held in castle sites. We see more and more castle imagery being used by the military. And I mean, castles really become a very important propaganda tool by the time we reach the 1940s. These connections to the pre-modern militarism, the pre-modern Bushido is something that you've written about in your earlier work, particularly inventing the way of the samurai. Uh, so then when we're talking about in the pre-war period and th this resuscitation or reconstruction of Bushido, do these castles kind of act as the centerpieces of this reconstruction? I mean, that's an excellent question because, I mean, castles are very certainly closely tied to discourses around way of the samurai or Bushido. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, the army occupies many castles and it portrays itself. You know, the modern soldier is portrayed as the heir of the samurai. You know, they're the ones channeling Japan's supposedly ancient martial spirit. Castles continue to be kind of symbols of authority. I mean, earlier it was this samurai authority and now it is this new imperial army authority. And when we look at the connections with the imperial house, you know, the largest castle in Japan, Edo Castle, is taken over as the new imperial castle in the early Meiji period. It becomes kind of an imperial center. And we see this echoed in Bushido, where in the early 20th century, we see the development of something that I call imperial Bushido, which is focused specifically on loyalty to the emperor and self-sacrifice. So this is getting away from loyalty to one's kind of feudal lord or this kind of smaller loyalty to this larger directed um, imperial loyalty. And so, I mean, I talk about this in, in my first book, Inventing the Way of the Samurai. And I mean, the other thing I discuss in, in this book is how Bushido is essentially invented in the Meiji period, have, and then is rapidly accepted as a supposedly ancient tradition. And I think it's important to put this in a global context, that Bushido is not just rapidly accepted um, as an ancient tradition within Japan, but also in the West, in China, and in other countries. And we really need to see this 
invention of Bushido in the light of the growth of nationalism, the kind of the creation of new nation states in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And this is obviously a worldwide process. And the Japanese thinkers who formulate Bushido around 1890 and onward, I mean, they're being directly inspired by Victorian ideals of chivalry and gentlemanship. I mean, the famous 19th century, you know, chivalric revival that takes place in Britain. And these thinkers are trying to find something similar in Japan. You know, just as, as Britain had a feudal knighthood, oh wait, Japan also had a feudal knighthood, and oh, they were called the samurai. And it's important to note here that, you know, this isn't a unilateral process of Japan kind of, you know, trying to recreate Western ideals, but it actually goes the other direction. So once Bushido is becoming established in Japan, people in North America, in Europe, also in China, are being inspired by Bushido. But we only need to look, for example, at the tremendous global popularity of Nitobe Inazo's book, Bushido, The Soul of Japan, which he writes in English in 1899 and becomes, you know, a bestseller translated into many different languages. You know, supposedly Theodore Roosevelt reads it and it's only translated into Japanese, you know, seven years after it's published in English. And I mean, that's a whole other thing which I discuss in the book. But I think that global element is very important. And that's not just Bushido, but the castles as well. So, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, that within Japan, castles are seen as these feudal relics and people are tearing them down. It's only kind of part of this global discussion about castles where we really start seeing changes in attitudes happen within Japan. Um, one thing is foreign visitors. I mean, already from the 1860s, you know, foreign visitors to Japan are amazed by these, these castle structures. You know, they're taking photographs. They're encouraging Japanese to take photographs. And they're really appreciating these structures. Japanese travelers as well, especially to Europe, are commenting on the castles that they're encountering. And they're encountering on this wave of medievalism that they're seeing in Europe at the time. And for example, the Iwakura mission, the famous mission that goes to North America and Europe in 1871 onward, you know, they're visiting European monarchs and rulers in castles. You know, you, you come to the UK and you visit the Queen in Windsor Castle. And, you know, this has a major impact on their views of their own castles and their own heritage. So in that sense, I think we really need to also look at this global angle. And then as we get into the 20th century, especially into the 1930s, the combination of Bushido and castles becomes ever stronger as Japan's kind of martial heritage becomes more and more important, leading into total war ultimately. So then what does happen in the castles after the war? I mean, if before the war, they're being kind of reappropriated by the military. So arguably, they're becoming symbols of Japanese militarism once again. What happens to them in the post-war? How many are rebuilt or when they're rebuilt, how are they repurposed? So this is another period where in after kind of the Meiji transition, it's also this trans-war transition, either side of 1945, where I think castles can be very revealing. And this is really kind of the origins of, of this project, which is, you know, when Ron Zweigenberg was finishing his, his excellent um, first book on Hiroshima and the origins of global memory culture, 
as he was working on movements in the 1950s in Hiroshima to construct the peace park, to recast Hiroshima as a world peace city, in the archives, he was finding these documents, which are referring to the construction of Hiroshima Castle, which is going on um, just a couple hundred yards away from the peace park, and clashes between conservative groups, oftentimes, who are trying to rebuild the castle, and other groups who are then trying to rebuild the peace park. And it's kind of looking at Hiroshima's military legacy, Hiroshima having been a major military city, and its new kind of peace identity that is really being promoted in the post-war. And so we really, throughout Japan, we saw countless conflicts in cities about these castle sites. I mean, what happens to them after 1945? What should they be? And the first thing we see after 1945 is actually they become occupied by the Allies because these are largely military sites. And like other military sites, the Allied forces come in and they occupy them. And, you know, this is true in Nagoya and Osaka, just about all over Japan. And throughout the course of the occupation, um, there's quite a lot of resentment in Japan in cities about the foreign occupiers in their castles. And this goes on well into the 1950s. Um, one other thing that happens under the occupation, but also very much driven by people in Japan, is that these castle sites are demilitarized and are supposed to become now cultural sites for the newly democratic Japan. And so the military structures and everything are often removed, and instead they start building museums, sports facilities, kind of schools, universities, instead, kind of new things for the post-war Japan. At the same time, dozens of castle buildings, especially keeps, are being rebuilt, largely out of concrete, in the 1950s. And in a sense, what's being done here is they are recovering their pre-modern past, um, but connecting it with kind of a hyper-modern post-war future. And this goes um, on well into the 1960s. So, for example, when the Nagoya Castle Keep is being rebuilt in the 1950s, on the one hand, you have this pre-modern castle design that was lost in 1945 in the bombing. But inside, you know, you have elevators, you have air conditioning. Mitsubishi is using the castle as an advertisement for its new elevator technology. And so by combining this kind of pre-modern past with kind of the post-war technology, you're essentially skipping over this very problematic 80 years of imperial history. And so what you're doing is joining the post-war technology, and you're also recovering kind of the samurai past, this kind of safe pre-modern militarism that predates the excesses of the imperial state, and you're recovering um, this kind of traditional martial masculinity. And speaking of that global interest in castles and mentioning of these foreign visitors who are coming and taking photos of all these Japanese castles, certainly that's happening to this very day. And the castles are often promoted around the world as one of the images of Japan. And certainly in my own classes, when I ask students, you know, what are the things that come to mind when we say the word Japan? Castles is always going to be one of them, along with things like sakura and cherry blossoms and geisha, for example. What are your thoughts on this almost casual association between Japan and castles? Is is this something that you think is good? And that's a great point that, you know, castles are, you know, one of the symbols of Japan now. I mean, if you look at advertisements, whether they're for Japan as a whole or whether they're for certain regions, I mean, both within Japan and abroad, you know, castles feature very prominently. And this is something you know, I'm currently working on is, is, you know, what is the state of castles in, well, now in, in the Reiwa uh, period. And I think 
actually, I mean, you, you use the word good. I think this this association between Japan and castles actually does have very many positive elements. I mean, it it boosts tourist numbers not only to Japan as a whole, but you know, to certain regions which which you know have castles. It boosts regional pride and local heritage um, in areas that you know are often struggling. I mean, if we take somewhere like, for example, Aizu Wakamatsu, that's a great example. And it also, it's a great opportunity to kind of preserve and showcase Japan's craftsmanship. If we look at somewhere like Kanazawa Castle, which was reconstructed out of wood using traditional methods about 20 years ago, I mean, it's a spectacular building. Or we can see what's going on at Nagoya at the moment, you know, where they're tearing down the concrete keep from the 1950s um, and have allocated about the equivalent of half a billion U.S. dollars to rebuild this thing um, by 2022 out of wood using traditional methods. I mean, it's a spectacular project. I think another actually really positive element here is, you know, getting people interested in history. And and this one, it's, it's a potentially positive thing. And, you know, it does get people interested, especially in, in pre-modern history. But what I would like to see in castles is more engagement with kind of the full history and especially the modern history of these sites. Because the modern history is is just, it's either intentionally or unintentionally obscured at just about all castle sites. Um, if we go somewhere like Himeji or Nagoya, there is almost no evidence that these were ever military bases. Um, I mean, almost all the military structures have been um, scraped off the earth, and either there's nothing there or some older buildings have been rebuilt. And I'd really like to see the modern history dealt with rather than having this, this kind of strange gap in the, the decades um, before 1945. Osaka Castle is a notable exception to this. I mean, they do actually deal with this history. I mean, also because, you know, they have the large brick headquarters building of the 4th Division of the Imperial Japanese Army sitting there right across from the concrete keep. And so they do actually acknowledge this to a certain extent. And I mean, this is this issue of the modern history. I mean, this is really where kind of this project originated. I mean, Ron and I both felt, you know, that there was a major gap in the field here. Because, you know, we have all this work on pre-modern castles, early modern castles, um, but there's very little scholarship um, on kind of the modern history of these sites and what actually happens there. I mean, there are a few articles in Japanese that are out there, and there's more and more work being done now. But I think there's a lot more opportunity to look at the modern history of castles and also the modern public history of castles and to really engage with both the Japanese and the overseas public in the full modern history of these sites. So I, I've only been to Osaka Castle. I've been to Matsumoto Castle. Odawara Castle, I think, is also an original one. But I'm curious, how many of the castles in Japan have you been to? And do you have any favorites? Uh, the dreaded, what is my favorite castle question. Um, you know, this actually changes quite a bit, probably depending on what's the, the last castle I went to. Yeah, so I, I, I visited about... 40 castles in 2018 when I was based in, in Kyoto for, for quite a few months. I've probably visited about 70 castles um, since this project um, began, since Ron and I began working on it. And But I've probably visited, I mean, closer to 100 castles in the six years I've, I've lived in Japan in total. Um, if I had to choose favorite castles, um, trying to step back a bit, I would probably say Osaka and Himeji for quite different reasons. I mean, Osaka for the richness of the layers of history that are there from kind of the 16th century all the way through the early modern period, and then its modern role as a military base, and the fact that, that that history is actually dealt with to a greater extent than at most other sites. So 
So I really like Osaka Castle. I mean, it's a fascinating witness to centuries of Japanese history. And, you know, they they hide far less than in other places. Conversely, it's actually, uh, Meiji is one of my favorite castles um, because almost everything has been erased. You know, the where there used to be barracks, there is now just a big open field. The former divisional headquarters building is unmarked. It's essentially now an administrative building for the Catholic kind of girls' school um, next door to the castle. Um, the former brick storage units are being used as an art gallery now. And so it's it's the erasure of that that modern history there and kind of the completeness of it, which which really fascinates me with Himeji. And, you know, ultimately, it's really just a great castle. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.